Um, we're in a series uh, called Shoe Leather Wisdom. And the reason for that is James is just a really practical book. It's just kind of rubber meets the road kind of book. And so uh, we, we decided to give it that title because it's kind of, as you walk through this life, James has some really practical things to say. Uh, and that's, that's why we gave it that title. So we're going to start in James chapter 2. We're going to go uh, through 14 and 17. Uh, we covered that some last week. We'll highlight a little bit this week, and then we'll go to 18 and 26 and cover the rest of it there. So uh, it reads like this. It's up on the screen as well. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have work? So this is the linchpin discussion going on here in chapter 2. All right? What good is it if someone says they have faith but they do not have works? Can that faith save them? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed or lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So let's pray. I always think that's a wise thing to do before we get started. Let's pray. We'll seek the Lord and then we'll go through the passage. Father in heaven, thank you for James. Thanks for his life. Thanks for what he wrote down in a book. Uh, Lord, we know he paid the ultimate price by dying as a martyr. And, uh, and so, therefore, we can take what he's uh, talking about seriously. It takes your wisdom to understand. It takes the eyes of faith to see it. We need that this morning. Give that to us at whatever stage we are. And we pray that, Lord, as we're going through this passage, going through the ideas, you're free to... Uh, interject. You're free to have a conversation with somebody. Highlight something that's not even in the message. We ask for that favor and we give that to your great hope and pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Okay, so the whole thrust of the passage, what I pointed out there when we started reading, is uh, James's thought here is that faith must have expression. Faith isn't just faith. It's not this static idea. Right? Or you hear people say today, I have faith in faith. And what, what is that? Right? No, you have faith in something. So, for example, this morning you're sitting on the chair. You have faith in that chair that it will hold you up. Okay? You have faith in other things. And in this, it's talking about when you have faith in Jesus, that faith has to have some expression. James calls them works. Right? There has to be something that comes out of it. It must have a response, in other words. It engages in the life situations that it sees around it. So let's take this James passage and kind of pull that apart and look at it. This passage is basic and practical. So remember, the problem we have a lot of times is when we read these passages, sometimes we forget that James is writing 2,000 years ago and some of the things that are true today are not, were not true back then. Right? So, for example, when we hear, if you see a brother or sister without food and we should meet the need, and then we see the people on the street corner, and then we have a television show that brings up the needs downtown Seattle, and then we hear the needs across the world in Afghanistan, and pretty soon we're like, ah, right? And we're just paralyzed and we do nothing. James had none of that. There was no TV. There was, there was no internet. There were no cell phones. Uh, there was no cable. There even wasn't something as basic as radio. Right? We call radio kind of old school, right? Uh, but it, there was none of that. And so when, when he's talking, the passage was directed at what you saw around you. And what, where were they? What did they see around them? Well, um, the thrust was James was writing to a dispersed people. Remember how that played out today? We'd call them refugees. Remember chapter 1, we walked through this whole thing. But just a refresher, a persecution had broken out in Jerusalem. And that was led and fueled by Saul of Tarsus. He had not yet become the Apostle Paul. He was in a little different camp at that point in his life. And, and by the way, that's a great word, right? Some of the worst enemies of God can become his best friends, so don't give up on anybody. But... Um, anyways, but Paul was, was doing that and they had been scattered to some of the outlying areas of Israel and the neighboring districts. So like Samaria and uh, some of those places, they were suddenly scattered out. And, and many had fled for their lives. Well, they didn't have time to pack the U-Haul, right? 
you know, grab the waffle maker, honey. You know, they, they didn't have time to do that. So they just grabbed what they could and they bolted because it was their life. Plus, not only um, that, but remember that many who had come to faith were kind of the lower strata of society, right? We're talking about the poor, the lame, the widows, orphans, the outcasts. So they couldn't flee with anything because they didn't have anything to flee with when they started. They just fled. They took them, right? That's all they had. They, they didn't even have a hip pocket to put something into. They just took off with their hips, right, and ran because that's what they had. And so James is talking about this group of people that got scattered out in these different communities. And, of course, these people come into the communities and some of the people that are in these communities are already believers. And then they see these other people walking into town. And James says, hey, if you see somebody walking in town, and in this case it says a brother, so it's a fellow believer in Christ, and, and, you, and they don't have clothes or they don't have any food. And, and you say to them, hey, be warm, be filled. I hope it goes well with you. You know, do you know where you're going? Well, I hope Jesus gets you there. Blessings. He's like, what, what are you thinking? Like, how can you call that faith? Right? And so James is arguing for looking at the things around you. Asking to give you God's eyes. To give you Jesus' eyes as you look at your neighbors and you look at your grocery store and you look at that. We, you know, we've, we've heard this before and, and it's still really, really true. And James' advice is uh, very practical because uh, these people had nowhere to go and no way to sustain themselves. So he's saying, help them. Do something. Um, just do something. We were in uh, old Sacramento yesterday and there's a kid with a... Uh, you know, a bucket, and he was drumming. You know, the, the you know YouTube drumming thing. And he was doing that, and uh, Zeb walks by him, engages in a conversation with him, and and he says, "Hey, can we get you a thing? Are you hungry or anything?" And and the guy says, oh, "I'm a little thirsty." And he says, "Well, if I got you water, would that?" Be? He says, "Yeah, that'd be great." So we go walk away. Zeb goes in the water and brings him back a bottle of water. It was a practical. It was right there, right? That's the kind of stuff we're talking about. Here's the point, James saying. Faith must have expression. He calls them work. Something that would be a result as a result of my having faith. In other words, what's the result of the result of you having faith? How does it show up? What does it look like? How do you see yourself cooperating with Jesus? And when he's saying this, uh, James, as I mentioned, he calls this he calls this works. But the point is, it's just easy to get lethargic, isn't it? You maybe could look back to an era and say, well, I had faith in that era. I was doing something. But now lately, we think our job is to sit and watch. And if we sit and watch well, we've done a good job. So we sit and watch in church, right? And if I come to church and I watch, I've done a good job. And we watch our television screens. And if I watch that, I don't know. We go to movies and we watch. Uh, We call it people watching. We sit on a park bench, we watch, right? And therefore, I become a very good watcher and therefore, I have really good faith. And James is going, eh, thanks for playing. Where did you get that kind of nonsense? Wake up. Hello. We are over-mediated, right? Uh, just, uh, they were talking in the conference how we are over-entertained and underwhelmed. And, and that our world is looking for something that will catch our attention. We're... Uh, overwhelmed with input. It's, it's just easy to shut down. And so to knock them out of their lethargy, which they, James is writing to them, they had gotten a little apathetic, it's to knock them out in the same way to knock us out of ours, James pointed out that you just can't sit there and say you have faith. That faith should get you to do something. It, there should be some kind of response. Some kind of practical correlation. So like all good preachers, he then uses a very extreme example to shake up their thinking. Right? Remember, we're talking to Jewish people here, right? And they had this stuff down way better than we ever thought we did. And so he uses this illustration, verses 18 and 19. He says this, But someone will say, You have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. In other words, as you sit there and watch, show me what that does, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they, sh- they shudder. He's saying if you just sit there and watch, you're no different than the demons. Now that's a kind of a radical 
illustration, right? That's not your everyday practical um, kind of illustration, but James pulls it out of the hat and, and for very good reason. Uh, Aja Brown, that's a name you might not know. She was a speaker at the conference. She's the two-time elected mayor of Compton, California. She was elected mayor at 31 years of age. Black gal, uh, incredibly intelligent. And, uh, and she's a believer in Jesus. Really, really fun to listen to her. She's something else. And she was one of the main session speakers uh, this week while we were there. And they're calling her work and the work of others that they're doing down there the miracle of Compton. All right, and you, some of you may have watched the film Compton, or maybe your only connect with Compton is that's the town Richard Sherman came from, and you recognize that name from there, um, or that kind of thing. But Compton has been an absolute war zone. Uh, matter of fact, Aja's grandmother was shot to death in a gang war uh, in in Compton, and so uh, it's just been basically a hellhole. And she has been elected mayor, and through 12 points of action that they're doing in the town, they are redoing the town, and it, it's called the Miracle of Compton. And, uh, and you can look it up. Actually, go on YouTube. You can look it up and see what's happening and, and doing stuff. They're repainting houses. They're repaving streets. They're redoing parks. I and mean, it's just an incredible, incredible thing. But she was talking, and she was saying, that what they were doing wasn't anything that unusual. She says it, she believes it's time for Jesus to manifest himself to the world through the works of his people. That was her actual words. I went, I'm speaking on Sunday. I can use that. That works. Thank you. So the conference was worth it already, right? And, uh, but she was saying that the world is, is tired of people talking at them. They want to see people doing something for them. Right? And so she said, we've just sat down to think practically, how can we do something that people will re- resonate with uh, in that particular community? And, uh, and, and it's, uh, again, Bob Goff, one of the other speakers, uh, he's just an amazing person and speaker. He's one of my favorites. And it would take way too long to list everything he's done or doing around the world. Uh, he's just a crack, crack up um, and uh, he's uh, the ambassador to Uganda. I mean, he's, he's just done all kinds of things. And he, was, uh, he, said, he said this in relation to the topic this morning. He said um, that uh, fail trying. He says most of us are afraid we'll fail if we try something. He says that's fantastic. And he says I've failed at all kinds of stuff. And it's, it's great. I'm still here. You know, he's that kind of personality. He says, he says, fail at trying. Don't fail watching. He says, because watching doesn't do anything. He says, you've got to get engaged. He says, for example, I'm doing all these things in Uganda and, and I thought the Queen of England would be interested in what I'm doing. And I thought, you know, I've never met her. I've, she's never met me. This would be really cool. So I thought I'd write her a letter. And so he wrote the Queen of England a letter. And uh, he says, uh, one of her maids in waiting responded that she wasn't available to meet me. And he says, oh, what a loss. It was her loss. He says, but you know, she might be interested in you. And he, so he put the Queen of England's address up on the screen, right? And so if you want to write the Queen of England, here's the address, write her, maybe she'll meet with you. You may fail, but who cares? And he had all kinds of illustrations where he's tried stuff and failed. And he said, I'm still here. And I've learned all kinds of stuff from it. And he says, I'm actually better for having tried and failed than just sitting watching. And I think that's a perfect picture for us sometimes. We get full of fear. If I try that, right, I'll... Right? We get that feeling inside. I know, I know as adults we're not supposed to... But inside, that's what we feel like. Right? And therefore, I better not try it. Oh, man, that could go... I'd look stupid. I could. And Bob goes, so what? Who cares? And, and James is kind of saying the same, same sort of thing. Get, get practical here. And he's saying, don't be like the demons. The demons know all about God. James says they know Scripture. Satan can quote Scripture. But it doesn't change them. They're still in opposition to God. He says they know Scripture, they know the truth, and they tremble, they shudder, but it doesn't change him. He says the whole point of it is it's supposed to change you. So he's saying this, don't just sit on your backside and affirm truth. 
Find a way to get involved. Most of us go, ah, church is boring. You know why it's boring? Because we aren't engaged. If we actually did the stuff we talked about, I guarantee you the Christian life is many things. One of them, it's not, is boring. Terrifying, right? I'm looking at these guys right now, Papua New Guinea. Yeah, terrifying, uh, out of my comfort zone. Anything but boring when you actually are engaging in faith. It's when we just sit that it gets really boring. And then we get distracted and we look for some kind of other adventure that we're trying to find. So the thought here that James is trying to point out is their belief doesn't move them to action. So good faith should produce good fruit. It should produce some kind of uh, effect. And then James uses two very well-known historical examples, and we'll move on then to verse 20 and 23, uh, that they would be very familiar with and that we're probably familiar with as well, Abraham and Rahab. And I want to pull some lessons out of this now as we've set the table with this. And the passage we're going to look at, by the way, James 2, 20 to 23, this is the passage that caused Martin Luther heartburn and, uh, and made him call the epistle of James a book of straw. And it has to do over this word of work. So let's look at this together and we'll walk through it. Okay? Do you want, it, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Before we go and pull that apart, a couple things. We said last week that the key distinction has to be made that we can't be saved by good works. None of us are good enough. Now, a number of us know that inherently because we were creepy, crummy people before Jesus found us. Some of us are pretty good, though. And we're going, you know what? Compared to the rest of the human race, ah, top 3%. We're rocking, okay? We're just up there. And, and, and maybe that top 3% can get in. And the Bible says, no. All of us have sinned in some way. All of us have fallen. We all fall short of the glory of God. So unless you're perfect, you don't get in. And what we know from the Bible is the only perfect person who ever lived was the Lord Jesus. And therefore, you can't get in for good works. So we are not saved. We cannot be saved by good works. But, and this is huge, when we're saved, we're saved for good works. So we cannot be saved by good works, but when we're saved, we're saved for good works. And that's a really key distinction uh, that we need to point out again. The good works are, are only a validation and an expression of God's Holy Spirit at work in us once he grants us salvation, right? It's by the power of the Holy Spirit that he generates these things that, that we call obedience or works. James points out that works are a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. They were the, the natural expression of his, Abraham's, believing in God. James says, Was not Abraham justified by works when he offered up Isaac on the altar? So what was justified? Abraham's works or his faith? Well, it wasn't his salvation that was justified, but his works were justified because he was stepping in obedience to what God had asked him to do. You see, James says this, his faith was active along with his works, and because of that he was justified and called a friend of God. What's being emphasized here is the power and the beauty and the necessity of obedience. There is a type of Christianity exists in America that says this. God is for you. You need to pray a prayer. If you pray that prayer, you get the go to heaven card. Once you get the go to heaven card, you put that in your back pocket. Live your life. You don't have to do anything. When you show up to heaven, pull the card out, show them the card. You're a card-carrying member. You walk right in. You know, check the card in the machine. It opens the gate. You walk into heaven. You don't have to obey you don't have to follow. It won't cost you anything. And by the way, because God's such a cool guy, he'll give you everything you want. There'll never be any tough times. There'll never be any hard times. There'll never be any trials. Okay? That, my friends, is not Christianity. Bible never says that. Uh, last I checked, it says we'll go through a lot of hard times. You ever gone through more hard times than you thought you wanted to go through hard times? 
It ever been longer than you wanted it to be? Ever been slower than you thought it should go? Like, okay, come, 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 get, get this off. Let's. I'm done. I'm done. Hello? Right? There's a type of Christianity that says, hey, just pray the prayer. You never have to do anything. You never have to cooperate. You never have to obey. And James is kicking the floor out from under that and saying, that is not true. You've got to get engaged. So the question for us this morning is, am I pursuing God by faith this morning or am I trying to be a good enough person so that he will accept me? Right? Do I come to church because uh, it's my way of gaining God's approval or do I come to church because faith tells me to come to church? It's not, the difference isn't that far apart. But it's, it's really close. Paul writes in Galatians, this says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this, only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, when you came to Christ, which was it? Did, was it the law that saved you or did you come to salvation because you placed your faith in Christ and it was by hearing by faith. Obviously, it's by hearing by faith. He says, Then are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham said, Abraham believed God and was counted him as righteousness. And this is where it gets into a tussle theologically because Martin Luther recaptured for the church the just shall live by faith. We talked last week about how the Roman Catholic Church had created this incredible work system and then indulgences that basically people could buy their way into heaven. And Martin Luther uncovered the truth. The righteous shall live by faith. So then... That turns into a whole theological debate of works can't save you, right? And then works are bad, faith is good, and then um, it gets into, if you bring the word works up, that's terrible, and Martin Luther didn't like the works, and he looked at James, and what James did is something a little different with the story than the story as you read it sometimes in Genesis, because in Genesis it says that, before anything, God spoke to Abraham and then it says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Then James takes that story, encapsulates more of the story and says, and because it was counted as righteousness, because he believed God, then Abraham followed through with offering Isaac on the altar and his works justified the faith. And James is saying it's an and both, not an either or. And, and Luther wrestled with and our, the church theologically has wrestled with that. Here's where I'm at. I'm in the practical shoe leather camp, okay? So it's true, I don't, need to, I don't need anything but faith. But then that faith should have expression, like James is saying. Paul uh, here's, points this out, that the miracles that he's talking about here, if you look in here, it says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by the works of the law, by hearing with faith. And obviously it comes by hearing of faith. You say, well, I haven't seen any miracles. People, there are miracles sitting all around us. There are, I talked to several people today that miracles happen of things that we didn't think would happen and are happening right now as we talked about. They're happening all the time. We just aren't paying attention. Uh, what kind of miracles? Well, in Abraham's case, he got his son back. Right? Hebrews talks about this, and if you're a parent, you can certainly understand this. Let's get it up there on the screen. Joel, can you move me forward? It's stuck again. Move me forward one. To the Hebrews passage. No. Oh, there we go. Thank you. Okay. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Tested. See that word? Any of you been tested? Okay. Any of you been tested by the Lord? 
Any of you gone, no, 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 not, not, no, don't, no, somebody else, right? You ever have something pick you? You didn't pick it, it picked you? And you suddenly realize you were in a trial and that God had allowed it? That's what this is. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, listen to this, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. In other words, all the promises that Abraham had received from God were in Isaac. And now God wanted him to kill Isaac like you're killing the dream. Are you kidding me? Whoa! What do we do? And so it says, he considered, pondered, he wrestled with, that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back, right? Because in Abraham's mind, it was a done deal. If it was between his son and what God asked him to do, he'd do what God asked him to do, even if it made no sense. And here's the thing sometimes. There's two ways to learn, right? So, for example, in America, we have teachers or professors or, uh, for example, pastor. And if I'm up front and I ask you to do something, Scott, I want you to go outside and uh, tip over the flower uh, baskets outside in the, the patio, okay? What's your first question? Why? Right? What? Mitch, I know you're an idiot. Now I'm about to prove it. Why? Okay? And I say, well, because I asked you to. Well, no, 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 no. Tell me why. And if I give a reasonable response, like, because, Scott, underneath the flowers, I planted a pot of gold, and it's enough money to fund your whole trip, plus the people who are going to go with you. So if you just go tip it over, you can pull out. I think I'd go do that, right? Then we'd, we'd do that. But there's another way to learn that's the biblical way to learn, and that says this. When you came to Christ, you placed all your trust in Him. Right? All the eggs in the basket. Your life, your one and only precious life, too bad, went in that basket with Jesus. And you put that in Jesus. You said, I trust you. I trust you with eternity. I trust you with my life. I trust you with my soul. So when that happens then, God comes and says, all right, great. You trust me now. Will you do this? And we say, why? By the way, do you ever get any answers to that question? No, right? It's the dumbest question in the world to ask. Why? Okay? If you ask what or how, you'll get far better answers than why. But if we say why, he says, because I've asked you to. And if you do what I ask you to do, you will understand then why I asked you to do it, and it will work out really good for me, and it will work out really good for you. So will you do it? What God asked of Abraham made no sense whatsoever. It was absolutely backward. It was a terrible idea. It, it violated... I mean, he was old already. He was ready to die. Now, I can't have more children. I can't have more promises. I can't have more progeny. I tried that a couple times. It didn't work out really well. Right? It kind of messed up. I don't have room, God, anymore for more promises. I got Isaac. You can't kill Isaac. And God says, I want you to follow through. He didn't say it'll be okay or anything. He just said, will you do this? And when Abraham followed through, then God did something supernatural in sparing his son and then providing the lamb. We know later that lamb is who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Right? God himself will provide the lamb who will be sacrificed for the sins of the world. What if Abraham had never done that? Imagine how different the history of the world or history of faith would be. So God wants us to learn by obeying. Then he jumps to uh, illustration number two. That's Rahab. Rahab's a fascinating story. Uh, um, he says, uh, the other, in this, so obedience can be painful. This one is obedience can be scary. You ever had God ask you to do something scary? says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And the same way, so he's referring to Abraham, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute. That's what she, she was a prostitute. She was a whore. 
You go, oh, don't say that. That's, you, that's, no, she, they must have got that wrong. Or she, no, she was a prostitute. She's the most unlikely person in the whole scenario to respond to God in faith. It says, the prostitute was justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from the works is dead. Where would James, why would James pull this? Right? Why would he pull Rahab? Well, let's look at the story. It's Joshua chapter 2. It's way too much to put on the screen. But let me give you the backdrop to the story. Joshua 2. Let's look at Rahab's confession of, uh, that she gave during this incident because it's both telling and amazing. Here's how it goes. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. So he did the same thing that Moses had done. He wanted to map it out before they went in. And they were going to Jericho and that. That's why he says, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she had said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly and you'll overtake them. But she had brought them up on the roof, hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. And so the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the, as, as far as the fords. And then the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Here's the scenario. They come in. She knows who they are. She hides them. The king comes to her and says, fork them up. And she goes, oh, they're gone. Now, she lies. We'll get all hooked up on the theology. Oh, she shouldn't lie. She's a Canaanite. They lied about everything. Okay? She doesn't care if she lied. She's trying to figure this thing out. What is it she's wrestling with? Because this is frightening. The king of Jericho doesn't come to nobodies, and he certainly doesn't come to prostitutes. He doesn't have time to do that. But he comes to her and he says, Give me those men. So if she gets caught, if she... If she flinches, if she so much as betrays something, she'd be dead on the spot, right? He's not going to mess with her. She's a nothing, life is cheap. He'd take her out. What forced her to to do this? What, What was brewing in her? Watch the rest of the story here. It says, before the men lay down, these are the two spies, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, here's what she said, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Shine and Og. So they're like, we used to war with them. We know what it took to take them out. You wiped out both of them. Like, ah! They're like, yikes! We've watched that and who you devoted to destruction. You took them all out. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is the God in heavens above and on the earth beneath. This is astounding for this woman to say that. We're talking about an immoral practicing prostitute who lives in a society of adulterous um, gods, thousands of gods, right? And she is saying, I have come to understand something. Your God, I've watched him. He's the real God. He is God. He is the God of the heavens above and the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord. Right? Not by my deities, by your God, who I know is coming in and is going to take out this city. I want you to swear by that Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house. Notice her intention isn't just for herself or to save her own skin. What is it? Save her family. Right? Give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father, my mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. 
If we do not tell, if you do not tell this business of ours, and then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. This is an amazing insight and faith of this woman. We just read it's a story. That was a real person in a real life situation. Not a very good life situation. Okay? With sexual disease and stuff, the average life of a prostitute was under 30 years old. Did you know that? She, and she recognizes who God is and she recognizes who those men are and she acts on that faith. She has no Bible. Right? She has no Bible to teach her. She knows in her spirit what's going on and she declares that that's God. And even more astonishing than this, she winds up in the line of Christ. Did you know that? You know, we read through the genealogy, name that I can't pronounce, stupid list. Have you ever looked who's in those lists? One of my favorite things in the Old Testament is going through the genealogies and reading and going through the reference books and finding out who those cats were. They are some amazing dudes and dudettes. Okay? Is it a dudette? Is that a... Right? Yeah, dudette. Yeah, there we go, Marie. And she is an outsider. She is a prostitute. She is a Canaanite. None of them are supposed to be allowed in. They are all supposed to be killed. And she, along with Ruth, another total outsider, get included not only into Israel... But she actually is in the line of Christ. She's one of Jesus' ancestors. She didn't ask why. She just did what she knew she had to do by faith. It's an astounding story. A prostitute, by faith, working out that faith, winds up being one of Jesus' ancestors. It's amazing stuff. Her faith truly did save her. But here's the point. We can get way too technical in all of these discussions and we can miss the main point that James is trying to make. What's he trying to say? God is far more interested in obedience than he is in posturing. Let me show you. This is uh, found in 1 Samuel. This is the story of Saul. And of course, Saul's anointed as king. Saul's a great man. It says he's head and shoulders taller than anybody in Israel. He's the most handsome man in Israel. By inference, he's also the greatest fighter in Israel. And he's anointed king. He's got it all going for him. But Saul, whenever God would ask him to do something, Saul would rationalize it and think it through and shift it to the way he wanted it to work. And it was really offensive to the Lord that he did that to the point where in one of these situations when he did this Samuel comes to him and says these famous words has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord let's put that in street leather right now what he's saying is if you were out sinning this week but you've come to church because it's the nice Christian thing to do is God more interested that you're here in church this morning or that you didn't obey him this week did you do what God asked you to do this week when you were at home? Did you do what God asked you to do at work? Did God, you do what God asked you to do when you are in the car, in the grocery store, wherever? Did you do that? Did you obey Him? Or are you just here Sunday morning posturing? God's really not delighted or interested in posturing. He's interested in obedience. Behold, it's better to obey than to sacrifice. You want to know what's the best thing, what do something God really wants? It's to obey Him. And to listen, take time to listen to what He's saying. Why do you spend time in the Word? Why do you have a quiet time? So you get God's mind. You can hear Him. He talks to you. Right? You should do this. For rebellion is the sin of divination or witchcraft, and presumption is as in iniquity and idolatry. In other words, rebellion. Because you've rejected the Word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. Saul did not obey well. And he's the prototype of everyone who says, I'm saved, but I can do what I want, and I don't have to do exactly as God has said. I'm the exception. It won't matter. It won't cost me. I'm getting away with it. I don't have to engage with faith because it's scary, and it's costly, and it's icky. I don't, I don't want to do that. So I'll just sit and watch, but I'm good. And James goes, no. No, no, you're not. The results were disastrous for him, for Saul, and they're also disastrous for us. 
So what is James advocating? Here's what James is advocating. You can find it expressed by Paul, the same idea another way in Philippians 2. And I'm, by the way, uh, if we could get the guys to come forward and um, start serving communion for us. Thank you. I got rolling there and forgot I was supposed to do that. So guys, if you'd begin to distribute communion, thank you so much for doing that. In Philippians 2, it says, Therefore, Paul's writing this, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. In other words, Paul's going, and this is the, this is the heart of every pastor, that if I were gone and I weren't here, you would actually obey more than if I was here. Right? Wouldn't that be the heart of a pastor? Wouldn't that be the heart of a parent? That when you leave home, and you leave your home in charge of your kids, that they would obey at home just as if you were there? Right? We know all kinds of stories of when the parents leave and parties break out, right? And the cops get called and it didn't work out the way it was supposed to. Paul's saying here, just as you've always obeyed, and, and here's what James is saying and Paul, hey, if you've been obedient and you've been doing what you're doing, you're good. This should be a great encouragement to you. This, this should be sweet because you, you, you know the pattern. You know what the Lord's been asking you. Not only my presence, but much more as work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, what James is trying to say, what Paul is saying, is that when you're saved, God's working in you. He's working in you through the Holy Spirit, and therefore, when you are doing works, you are just obeying your you're complementing, you're cooperating with what he wants to do in you. And that always expresses itself somehow into your community, whatever your community is, where your home is, where your neighborhood is, where your store is, where your work is, that's your community, right? You know, the Bible talks about salvation in three senses. Um, you were saved, right? There was a the point where you came to know him. Then you are saved and then you will be saved. Right? You were saved, you are saved, and you will be saved. Those three different tenses. You were saved means there was a point in time when you asked Christ into your life, you gave up the reins of your life, put all the eggs in his basket, you surrendered and made him Lord. You asked him to save you from your sins, and you were saved and you knew it. By the way, if you're not there this morning, people may think you're a Christian, but you know you're not. And you're talking about... I can't get to being saved and will be saved. I am not even at the are saved part yet. Then you need to do that first step. Your step of faith, what does it look like? Is to ask Jesus into your life. It's to give up control, surrender the control of your life. I tell people all the time, you make a great you, you make a lousy God. You make a lousy Jesus. Right? And And we often... We look at our life and just go, ah! And that half the time is because we don't let the Lord have control of it. We're still trying to run it. But if you're there, you say, God, I've got to give up. I know it. I've got to give up. I've got to put the eggs in your basket. I have no basket but you. I, I need you to come into my life. I need to be rescued. I need my sins to be forgiven. I'm choking on them. I can't do this anymore. And I recognize it's not working. And I need to... That's the... You are saved, Right? There was a time when you were saved and you know it. And that could be today. That could be for some of us a long time ago. You were saved. Then the Bible talks about you are being saved. Right now as you sit there, you are being saved. You are saved and you are being saved. God is working in you. to. He loves you just as you are. But He loves you too much to keep you that way. Okay? He wants you to become like Him. And so He's in the process of of saving you. And this is what James is talking about, that the second phase, by faith, letting God work out His salvation in us, which Ephesians 2 says that God has created in Christ Jesus, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should, what? Walk in them. That's why Ephesians says, stay in step with the Spirit. We are following God. He's not following us. What that means is I've got to find God's path. I've got to find his will and bless him. I'm not looking for God to bless my plans or my path. I'm asking to follow his path. It's a, it's a flip of perspective. 
And it, everything's the same, but everything's different. Is the best way I can describe it. But then to keep this whole thing in perspective, um, what James has been highlighting is that we are being saved stage. In this being saved stage, we can't just sit back and do nothing. What is it that Jesus has asked you to do? Right? Maybe write a letter. Maybe it means you have to forgive something. Maybe you have to let something go that you don't want to let go. Maybe it's you have to take something on that you weren't willing to take on. Maybe it's you have to change an attitude towards God. You've been fighting Him and, and He's asking you not to fight Him, to stop, be at peace with Him. Maybe, it, you know, right? There's a thousand different things it could be. But in this second, uh, maybe, maybe it's, I, I, you know, I, I, I need to honor God with my tithe. I don't do it. I know I should. I just don't. Maybe that's where you've got to engage with your faith. There, there's all kinds of this stuff, right? But what he's saying here is that uh, God has created these good works and we need to walk in them. And um, we've got to work it out by faith. With fear, this passage says here what? With fear and trembling. It says work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because why? It's God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Recognize who you're dealing with. As God. Be careful. Do what you do in obedience out of fear and trembling. Not have to. Get to. I get to obey God. This is terrifying. It's awesome. <laughs> right? We see it as a to-do. It's really a to-get. I get to. Now, if you're doing that this morning, if you have been doing that this morning, if you did that this week, you should be really encouraged this morning. This should reaffirm everything you heard the Lord tell you this week as you listened to Him, as you prayed, as you thought through. Right now I'm reading through the Psalms. How David wrote that stuff, I like... And it speaks 4,000 years later as clear as it did then. Unbelievable. Right? I just got lost in that this week. Just stuck in a Psalm and couldn't even get out of it. Like, how did he capture that? That was just... A stunning. So you should be really encouraged. Many of us are there. Many of us do do that. That's where we have been. And that's why we're having the impact we're having as a church. That's why things are happening. And that's why we see the Lord doing things because we're stepping in obedience. If not, the question would be, all right, what would it look like this week to take a step of faith? Bob Goth, again, one of the speakers of the conference says, uh, remember that story about Jesus where he got in the boat and then... Um, he said that Jesus preached, and then when he got done preaching, he looked at Peter, and he, what did he say? Push out a little deeper. Lower the nets. And what did Peter say to him? Lord, we fished all night. Nada. Zilch. Zero. But because you've asked us to, we'll do it. Right? And what happened? The nets were full. Right? Push out a little deeper. God might be saying this morning, you've got to push out a little deeper. Where you're at, the depth won't work. You've got to push out a little deeper. God, Bob God said just his illustration was extend a hand to somebody. He's had an affliction uh, and uh, it wasn't really a stroke, but something. But his left hand is shaky. So he keeps his left hand in his pocket. He says because he doesn't want people to see his handshake. But he says, you know what? Half the time when he's greeting people, he has to reach out and touch them. He says, I, I have to reach out with my shaky hand. And he says, what would it take for you to reach out with your shaky hand? Your shaky hand of faith. To maybe a neighbor or maybe someone at the store, or maybe somebody you walk into or uh, that kind of stuff. You never know who you're going to meet. I mean, faith is scary till you do it. Then it becomes amazing. We were at the conference. We're sitting. There's, what, five, 7,000 people there, Micah? Something like that? Crazy number. There's so many people, they couldn't fit them all in the auditorium. So they had outdoor venues, right? Which in California is really nice. 85, they have shade, screen. You're like, yeah, this is... This is gorgeous, right? Come, we're from Seattle. We love it. And uh, we're sitting out there. And so there's a couple sitting next to us. And I start talking to them. And they're from uh, Illinois, Chicago. And I said, ah, oh, Green Bay, Ugh, wrong football team. And, you know, you get into a lot of fun talks like that. And, and so they looked at me and we're talking. And I said, oh, we're from Seattle. And I said, oh, we're. And I said, oh, Seattle uh, or Washington, right? Seattle. And I said, actually, North Seattle. Well, we're Mill Creek. You know, we're I-5. Oh, we were just there last week. What? You were? Mill Creek? Yeah. Our friend lives there. Well, who's your friend? Our friend Tim. 
Well, what's Tim do? Well, you know, in Mill Creek, there's that new arena they just opened up, right? The, the sports arena just up the road here, Ma. And, and he's one of the owners, and he's our friend, and so we went and visited him. I said, you're kidding me. So the guy who runs that in Mill Creek is a believer. He go, yeah, give me his name. So I got his name. So I'm going to call Tim up this week. Say, hey, I met your friends Peter and Cindy at a conference down in California among 7,000 people who were sitting at the same table together. What are the odds of that? Right? Seriously. And yet... There'll be a relationship because I took a step of faith. What was the step of faith? The speaker said, hey, greet the people next to you. That was, a, that was as big a step as it took, and it, it's going to ricochet all the way up here to Mill Creek. Isn't, what could God do with that? Take a step of faith. Like Bob says, extend a hand and engage in faith. Let's go to communion. Let's do this together. I thought this was really a fitting uh, idea of James talking about when we think about Jesus and communion. You know, Jesus engaged for us, right? He didn't just talk the idea. He just didn't think the idea. He could have done both those things. He actually stepped out and did the idea. He stepped in for us. He took faith and engaged it for us and we call it salvation through Him. He says, I want to give you a picture that you can always remember this by. When you think about trusting me, when you think about those scary places where I ask you to take a step of faith, he says, remember, I took the first step. This is my body. It's going to be broken for you. Right? It's going to be painful, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it because I love you. He says, eat this in memory of me. Then he took the cup, which is a symbol of his blood, and he said, this is going to be shed. The Bible says most of us have not shed blood when it comes to the cause of Christ. But that's not totally true around the world. Around the world, there's a bunch of people right now suffering and shedding their blood just like Jesus shed his blood for the sake of the cause of the gospel. We call it the persecuted church. Right? And they understand what it costs for Jesus to shed that blood because they've had to shed their own. We've not had to in this country yet. But we might have to. And it will be only by faith that we're able to do that. We're going to have to trust. In other words, the boat's going to have to go a little deeper in the water to get to that level. Jesus says, drink this in memory of me. And they have the worship team come up and close us out. But while they're coming up, and by the way, it's just them coming up. You know them, so just ignore. The question this morning would be this. What's one step of faith that God has identified for you this morning that you need to take? If you're doing great, what's the step? If you were doing lousy, what's the step? Just stop for a second. Close your eyes. Just stop. What is the step of faith that's been identified for you? Do you have it? Then, Father, this morning the prayer is that we do it. In your name, amen.